We have award-winning, heart-stopping and mind-expanding shows, yes, but they are inspired by those places where the creative arts intersect with other disciplines. By nature, Sudesley people are curious and we're interested in natural sciences, history, mythology, engineering, athletics, anthropology, astronomy, and so much more. Right now, in the background, you're hearing the spellbinding music of Foya. This music is composed by Guy Dubuc and Marc Lessard, also known as Bob and Bill. Foya is a very special Cidusole show that tells a story about the transfer of knowledge. It is set in a naturalist library that transforms into different exotic locations. It follows the journey of a rebellious young girl and she is sent by her mischievous grandfather on a fantastical quest spanning generations. Today, we're going to discuss different ways of exploring the transfer of knowledge or learning and specifically about the fusion of art and science. We're going to learn more about the ideology behind the art-science fusion program, why combining mediums helps us see and understand things in new and different ways, and how the arts and sciences both have their unique creative elements and paths towards discovery. Today, I am excited to introduce a guest who has thought a lot about the transfer of knowledge, how we learn, and different creative ways of learning. Diane Ullman is here to help us understand it all. Dion is a distinguished professor of entomology at the University of California, Davis, where she studies insect-virus-plant interactions and the development of management strategies for insect-transmitted plant pathogens. Dion is also the co-founder and director of the UC Davis Art Science Fusion Program and frequently teaches special seminars and harness courses using this teaching paradigm focus on the connections between art and science. The UC Davis Art Science Fusion Program's mission is to bring the creative energies of the arts and the science into the mixture that catalyzes change and innovation in learning for people of all ages. Described as a 
spurhead for future creative work in the intellectual borderland, the program is a portal into a new creative territory in which people observe the world around them with fresh eyes, testing their ideas and transforming those ideas into new concepts and new insights. So exciting. <laughs> Diane Ullman, welcome to Cirque du Sound. It's a honor to have you at the podcast. Thank you so much, Michelle. And it's a real honor for me to be here with you today. I'm very excited about our conversation. I, I think it's a, an exciting time in history because we, I feel sometimes we're like in the Italian Renaissance where science and art and humanities work together. And maybe we have to do that because of the challenges that are unprecedented for mankind and womankind, I would say. So it's, it's a big honor and I, and I think we look, we're going to learn a lot with you today. In broad strokes, what defines art-science fusion and the ideology behind it? Well, thank you so much for that question. So unification is really at the core of the art-science fusion program. And when these areas, these two beautiful disciplines connect, there's a tremendous kind of awareness that arises. That connection really serves like a catalyst. So catalysts are always needed where there's some kind of obstacle, whether it's two chemicals coming together that need an enzyme or it's something that uh, generates a creative spark for an artist. So you need, you very much need a catalyst. And when art and science connect, that catalyst happens and people arrive at a very... A tremendous awareness when an artist and a scientist can communicate and cross those disciplinary barriers. There's new ideas, new innovations. I would say a, a great passion mm. arises and people can feel a creativity and a way of seeing the world that they haven't been able to arrive at before. Wow. And I'm glad you talked about the challenges of our current world. There's never been a time when we needed that spark of passion, of curiosity, of freedom to create across disciplinary borders. There's never been a time when it was more needed. So in this work, we see people arrive at a freedom to pursue challenges, um, to come up with new ideas, whether those are ideas are cultural, whether they contribute to commerce and industry, uh, maybe to society, maybe to what we're researching, how we're researching it, and how we're translating those ideas for the world. I feel that especially for environmental literacy, The connection between art and science is absolutely essential and a way that students can start to leave the realm of despair over what's happening to the environment and start to look for new solutions, new ways of doing things, new ways of overcoming these, these challenges. In, in our society and in our academic institutions, 
there's these very staunch separations between the arts and the sciences. And I, I always think of a really incredible person, E.O. Wilson, the late E.O. Wilson. He was a great naturalist, a biologist, a philosopher. And he wrote a book called Consilience about arguing. I mean, this was back in the, the 90s. He wrote a book arguing that we must bring the arts and the sciences together to arrive at what's needed under the, the challenges of the 90s, but he was projecting all the way out to times beyond his, his lifetime. And he said, all these separations, they're not reflections of the real world. They're just artifacts. They're, they're artifacts of scholarship mm -hmm. that we need to, to overcome. So when we can move past those artifacts, we find ourselves in this very rich kind of creative territory that I've witnessed in my own practice is transformational mm. for people. So they arrive in this place where art and science connects and it's like a new door opening in which they go through a process of self-discovery and start looking at things, observing things in a very different way with fresh eyes, if, if you will. And when that happens, they arrive at new insights and new respect for the world around them. So as they look at nature and they become more observant and they start to look at the art of nature mm -hmm. and bringing that art together with a scientific understanding, they find this space in which I would say it's it's like an enlightenment in, in a respect. And once they do that, they start to understand the world around them. And that's the point in time when they become more interested in saving it. Mm. And that's why I think there's such a strong connection back to environmental literacy. You, you don't have a passion to save something you don't understand and you don't love. But once you love it and you understand it, that passion and that willingness to do what needs to be done can really, I would say, blossom. When I was a kid, there was sometimes in science fiction, the mad scientists or like scientists wanted to destroy the world. And it couldn't be more remote from the reality because the more I meet with scientists, the more I, I find proximity of thinking between scientists and artists because we all are curious about the mystery of lives, but also we're all seeking for the beauty of it. And we're not about power or politics, you know? So mm -hmm. if I was to rewrite the movies, it would be more like the, the bad business person who invests in order to use the, the science to a bad end. But the scientific people basically are in love with, with life, you know. It, it extends to mathematics, the beauty of the mathematics. I mean, I've spoke with mathematicians that are as passionate as a violin player talking about music. But the more we're together, I think the more it will be clear for people who are not scientists or, or artists, we, we have this moral responsibility, us people in, in touch with the life, beauty, and fragility. There's, there's more similarities between scientists and artists, mm -hmm. then there really are differences. Yeah. 
that I can assure you that you could walk into any art department or any science department in the nation for the most part, and they would be more immediate in telling you all the differences. But in fact, artists are, are curious about their world. They, they are incredibly observant. That's true of scientists, of course, very observant people. It's integral to the sciences and curiosity is integral to the, the sciences. So we have those things in common. And while maybe on the side of, of art, the experimentation may become more intuitive, whereas we're kind of set in certain ways of doing things in the sciences. But we both experiment. Every great artist that I've had the pleasure to interact with is always experimenting yeah. with their medium, oh, and yeah. pushing it, pushing the envelope. And it's the same in the sciences. We are constantly experimenting. It's, it's everything for us. So there's so many similarities mm-hmm. between these two areas. And when we're at the same table, extraordinary solutions can arise. And I, I'm thinking right now of David Edwards, who is a professor at Harvard. And he started his career in the sciences, but eventually made connections into the arts. And through his work, he started a place in Paris, actually, called Le Laboratoire, where he brought scientists and artists together and all kinds of incredible inventions have come out of his willingness to create these connections. So, you know, I think that when you bring these different points of view to the table, then you arrive at at solutions the two sides never would have thought of alone. There's a true synergy that happens. And for me, as a university professor... My passion around this is really education. So, and I mean education broadly, the general public, the undergraduates on the campus, the graduate students on the campus, outreach into kindergartens and grade schools and high schools. I have a real strong passion for for education. And one of the things that I've loved about the strategies that have grown out of the Art Science Fusion program is that they extend. So we have often created large-scale public art that's permanently installed. Okay. Sometimes the artwork is individual and the students carry it home with them. But in this framework, the students really become their own teachers in a way. It's very much a process of discovery. And it, it is, of course, can apply to any of the arts. So in the Art Science Fusion program, we have had a lot of visual arts, ceramics, painting, uh, textiles, film, and then also performing arts, dance songwriting. We've had a professor who teaches art and science through photography. 
Can you give more examples on how you can teach science with photography, for example? Sure. So the professor that teaches that course, his name is Terry Nathan. He's an atmospheric scientist at UC Davis. And he's also a fine arts photographer. So he, when he works with the students, he starts having them connect the way you think, for example, about light and how that connects to how you compose photographs. And part of their assignments, they have several assignments during the, the range of the quarter, but one of the things they do is they go out onto the campus and they look for their own examples where art and, and science may connect. And then they create photographic compositions around that. So they're learning about light and atmosphere and illusion. You know, one of the things that Terry has done in his own practice is to create these illusions of clouds forming. And he's just using a candle and smoke. So they learn about illusion. They learn about using light. What was the origin? Why did you create it? And what, what sparked the first idea? And how did you gather people? Because it's something fairly new. How do you gather everybody to get involved in that, that new field? So I joined the faculty at UC Davis in 1995. And I was at a bit of a crossroads in my own life because I had had breast cancer, a very mm. aggressive case of breast cancer. So I had lived through chemotherapy. I had a little daughter and I was really deeply engaged in my scientific pursuits. But I felt that there was kind of a lack of meaning mm. to what I was doing. And I was really, really reaching for that as I arrived at UC Davis. And I got my PhD at UC Davis. So one of my most important scientific mentors was in the department that I ended up coming back to as a faculty member. And he was a very, very, very important mentor to me. And very shortly after I returned to the campus, he died. He was only 53. His name was Sean Duffy. And I was devastated. The department was devastated. And we started working with an artist, Donna Billick, to create a memorial for, for Sean. And I was designated to work with her. So I started spending time with her in her studio. And, you know, I told her, this is like so fabulous. I, I just felt like I was finding that meaning that I was looking for. And so she said, well, you, you should take a course from me. And so I took a sculpture course oh, wow. from her. I, I worked with her to create the memorial. And in that process, we had a late night epiphany that we could join art and science for the purpose of teaching students entomology mm. about the biology of insects. Yeah. And she was building a, a 4,500 square foot mosaic that was going up on a wall in Sacramento. And she said, I, it's the Sacramento River Valley. We need some insects in here. And for whatever reason, I started making these grasshoppers. And I made some mating grasshoppers. And I, I kept saying to myself, I can't believe how much I'm learning about grasshoppers by building these 
ceramic grasshoppers. Wow. I'm an entomologist. I've been an entomologist for 20 years, but I, I didn't realize all these intricacies. Mm. And we started talking about that and we said, we, we've got to use this to teach entomology. And I proposed the course. Lots of people told me this will never be approved. No one will approve a course like this. And I, I had nothing to lose, yeah. so I proposed it. And six weeks later, I got my approval. Six weeks? That's and fast? Then, the process? then nobody could believe it, and I had no studio to teach it in. But we, we figured all that out, and we started. And I was able to have Donna Billick join me in that endeavor. And it's together we co-founded the Art Science Fusion Program. So that was really the origin. How do you find a fusion of art into your process of research and study? How, it, how does it help to evolve and enhance it? That's a wonderful, wonderful question. So when I first began thinking about this, I was keeping these two practices, I realized, very separate. So I was doing my research in a very traditional way, thinking about it in a very traditional way. And I was learning to be an artist and doing artwork that did connect art and science, but I was keeping it in its own pathway, mm -hmm. if you will. Were you doubting that, were you fearing like to interfere with your traditional scientific approach by, oh, this is... Uh... This is going to taint my, my, my process or results, no? No, I don't think it was that intentional. Okay. So you'll find in a lot of institutions that when you step outside of the norm, it's not appreciated by your colleagues. And you face a lot of pushback, if you will, But I don't really think it was that that was holding me back. I just don't think I had enough experience to realize the power of what I was actually doing. And once that evolved and I started to realize that, I began to bring the artistic expression back into the laboratory. Mm. And I think one of the ways that it influenced my work the most was that when you're working... So I work with insects that transmit plant viruses. And it's very complex. The insect has to get the virus out of the plant. It has to go to the right places in the insect's body. Sometimes it has to replicate in the insect. And then the insect has to get it back into a new plant. So there's all kinds of complexities on an ecological level on an organismal level, and even down to molecular levels. And I would be working very hard testing a hypothesis and then not always understand where my data was leading me. And I found that if I started to try to illustrate that, started to try to create a graphic that would let me explain it to somebody else without words, It opened up a way of thinking for me that actually began to lead me to my next hypothesis and lead me to start to see 
what I understood well, what I didn't understand well. So, you know, to give you an example, maybe, I was involved in a genome project to get the genome of this very, very tiny little insect called the Western flower thrift. It's, it's a tiny little insect. It loves to feed on flowers, but it transmits these very, very damaging viruses. And we wanted to get the genome of this insect. And, you know, it turns out it has, it's tiny, but it has like 17,000 genes, wow. you know. So we're trying to annotate them and understand what they do and put them into categories. And finally, as we were writing, trying to write all of this, Somebody came to me and said, can you put this into a conceptual framework that's visual so we can better see where we're going? And I ended up doing that. It was actually a tremendous amount of fun for me. And I, I actually started to understand the science better than I did going into the process. And it ended up being a figure in the genome paper. So it it's the opening for the genome paper. Wow. So anybody who comes to that can look at that graphic and with very few words, understand the very complex genome of that insect and actually see the insect because it's so tiny without a microscope, you wouldn't be able to, to see it very well. But in the photographs that we were able to publish, I was able to show that. So a lot of times it brings understanding for me and also the ability to communicate to other people. And, and you know, the sciences, we're not famed for explaining our science very well. And I think art-science fusion gives us a pathway to that. It gives us an avenue where we can take very complicated things and make them visual so that people can see what we're trying to communicate without having to understand every little detail or worry about the vocabulary, you know, or things like that. So I think it's, it's very important in that way. Wow. In a minute, I'm going to continue this conversation with Art Science Fusion co-founder and renowned entomologist, Diane Ullman. Fans go first. Whether it's early access to seasonal deals or pre-sales, pick your tickets before everybody else. Sign up for ClubSick today and you'll be the first to hear about access to special events, pre-sales, and discounts. Take a look behind the curtain and enjoy up-to-date news on all things Cirque du Soleil, including shows, artists, and latest innovations. Visit CirqueDuSoleil.com to subscribe. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to Cirque du Sound, a brand new podcast from Cirque du Soleil, looking at the interdisciplinary roots of creativity. My name is Michel Abriz, and today we're focusing on the transfer of knowledge and how bringing the creative energies of the arts and science together catalyzes change and innovation in learning. Diane, we've discussed the general idea behind the art-science fusion program and how the integration of the two disciplines, the two approaches, can enhance both 
the scientific and artistic process. But let's take a little step back and talk about the transfer of knowledge and learning in general. And not everybody learns in the same way, right? Some of us learn by listening, while others may learn more visually. Let's dive deeper into why combining mediums helps us to understand concepts and ideas in new and different ways and how the arts and science both have their unique creative elements and path towards discovery. As an educator, scientist and creative, how has the science and art fusion ideology evolved the way you see yourself as a teacher? Thank you for that question. So in the art-science fusion paradigm, mm -hmm. We bring students into a space, an intellectual but physical creative space called the Labudio, Lab Plus Studio. And this is a real place. It's on the UC Davis campus. So the students are grounded in lectures that I give. Sometimes guest lectures come in as well. And in that sense, In the lecture, I'm there to lead discussions and to get them started having the knowledge base as a foundation. But in the Labudio, they are hands-on and experiencing because they have created their designs, then they fabricate those designs with their own hands. And it's during that process that a lot of self-discovery happens for the students. For me, as a teacher, in this kind of setting, I see it really as a continuum from the lecture setting where I'm kind of the sage on the stage to the Labudio where I'm simply a guide. So they're moving through the Labudio experience and it's a process. They have to master a medium. They have to figure out how am I going to take this lump of raw clay and turn it into this thing that I've designed and make it express what I want it to express. So in that setting, I become more a guide uh -huh. and less a person standing in front of them just downloading knowledge. So it's, it's changed my thinking about teaching profoundly. It's a legacy, really, to be able to continue that kind of education. So for me, as a professor, I feel that that extends what I can do in this really enormous way. And I have the great pleasure of learning from the students. Mm. So, you know, they talk about lifelong learning, and that is what really keeps me passionate. In Cirque du Soleil shows Hoya, a show directed by Martin Genet with creative direction by Richard Dagenet. In this show, we follow our young protagonist, Hoya, on her fantastic journey to gather all the knowledge of the world. And along the way, she receives guidance from her grandfather and her grandfather's assistant. I think it's a beautiful idea of a grandfather passing his love of knowledge to his granddaughter And for the granddaughter to be willing to carry that flame of knowledge forward, I couldn't help but think about a scientist named Ernst Haeckel. Mm. He was a great artist also. So 
You know, David Edwards coined a term art scientist. And I think Ernst Haeckel would very much be an art scientist. So he um, came from a relatively wealthy business family. He was born in the early 1800s, 1834. And his father was a businessman, had absolutely the idea that Ernst would be a medical physician. And Ernst preferred his art and preferred other things. He he did not want to be a medical physician, but his father insisted and he went, he got all the education, he became a medical doctor. He really hated it and he wanted to leave the profession. So his father said, you know, I think thinking that if he could send him on an adventure that would be truly miserable, that he would just come back and do what he was supposed to do. No, that's cool. But So what he did is he got him a position on the boat that was laying the first transatlantic cable. And the way that they did that, it was a big boat with this gigantic cable on, uh, you know, a big reel in the back. And they were just slowly yeah. lowering it. And it would slowly fall to the bottom of the sea. At that time, they believed all life in the ocean was in the part that was visible. So anything deeper than where they could see, they believed everything was dead. They couldn't imagine that there could be life at these depths where the sunlight didn't reach. But every now and again, the cable would break and it would literally take them months to drag this cable back up and get it reconnected. And to their surprise, when they would drag it up, it was encrusted with all of these creatures. So Ernst was giving the job of sitting down in a, a little dark cabin on this boat and with a microscope, identifying all these creatures wow. that they were pulling up out of the sea. And many of them were microscopic, um, a group called the Radiolaria um, that that have these beautiful uh, skeletons. So he was drawing all of this. There was no photography wow. for him to use at the microscope. And he's an incredible, he was an incredible artist. So he actually described over 3,000 of the 5,000 species of Radiolaria. Really? And, and he was the first human to see that. He was the first human. He was human. the first human wow. to see life from the depths of the sea. Wow. And he loved it, and he became sure. an incredible artist. He traveled, he was an adventurer. He eventually went back to Germany and became a professor and studied embryology and all kinds wow. of things, always using his artwork, always using his artwork. He did have two daughters, and I have no idea, I find nothing in the history of Ernst Haeckel that talks about his relationship with his daughters mm. or whether he shared anything with his daughters. But in my imagination, seeing the grandfather with Hoya, it made me think of someone like Ernst Haeckel sharing with his granddaughter all those adventures and how to go out and seek all this new knowledge. Wow. You used the word epiphany a bit earlier. Tell us maybe about another moment of epiphany in your whole journey into art and science. Moments like, ah, oh, okay, if I didn't have that approach, I wouldn't have gone to that conclusion or that discovery. 
I think when that has happened for me, those moments of epiphany, it has been when I'm doing artwork that actually might have nothing to do with the topic I'm thinking about. But the act of creativity that occurs when you are really into a piece that you're working on. It doesn't matter if it's something you're painting or you're creating out of a sculpture, out of clay. It takes your mind to Mm. a very particular place that I find I don't arrive at that particular place in my thinking without being involved in the creative process of creating art. And in that state, I have had epiphanies about my science and understood connections between things that I just was missing or realizing that I've been thinking about something in the sciences so hard and with so much intention that I have actually failed to see the bigger picture Mm -hmm. around it. So for me, that's where I've had the greatest epiphanies, I think, from from my artwork. So in the world of art science, for you, art is the opening door. Art is the opening door for me in the sciences. And I feel that the science I've done has gone much further than I might have taken it if I hadn't had that outlet. And it it also is important for my soul. And if I didn't have that connection, and I have access to the Labudio all the time, wow. and to a wonderful group of people who help maintain the Labudio. And in recent times, a new faculty member who's young, just starting her career, arrived at Davis and has an interest in the Labudio and has become part of the Labudio and is carrying it forward. And seeing that as it blossoms and evolves into something that may be different, but new and exciting is really wonderful, wonderful to be part of. It's very energizing And I can bring that energy back to my science, to my writing of my science, Mm. because scientific writing can get kind of dry. But I find that if you have that creative streak going in your mind, you can bring that into your writing and make science more exciting to read about. It seems almost like art is the permission to be emotional in science, no? I think that's a great point, really, because I think a lot of times people want to keep the science free, free of that emotion. And there's good reason to be methodical and logical and all of that in doing your science. But I think bringing the emotion back into it gives it another dimension. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to see things. It allows you to be more observant in a new way. So I think that's a really important point. I'm glad you asked that question. 
I want to hear you, your thoughts about the educational system as it exists today and how is it maybe already transforming into something more evolved. As, as the art science fusion program evolved, also the way that, that you look at discovery and a transfer of knowledge? Well, in answer to the last question, art science fusion has entirely transformed my view of how people learn. And I've come to realize that self-discovery is absolutely critical in order for people to remember the information mm. that they learn. I would say that UC Davis is ahead of the curve in many ways in creating more experiential learning mm -hmm. for students. Mm -hmm. So in spite of the large numbers of students, for example, Intro to Biology has 800 students in a class. They still have laboratories and they make that happen. They have laboratories where they put their hands on things, they do their own experiments, they learn how to work with the equipment. Translating that into the Labudio, students always tell us at the end of the quarter how much they appreciated us trusting them mm -hmm. to work with their own hands. So that's very important. Mm. But in terms of institutions, unfortunately, as institutions grow and become larger and larger with many, many departments, structures become really rigid. Mm. And that is, to me, one of the greatest problems in trying to connect art and science. It's like there's, there's a chasm between the humanities and the sciences. It's completely artificial, but it is very rigid. Mm. And you, you have to find those like-minded people who are willing to reach across those disciplines and really collaborate and integrate. And that is, that is a real challenge. Something that I'm seeing is, as I'm on the older side, I'm seeing that the younger faculty are not that impressed with those rigid barriers. <laughs> They're ready to reach across the barriers. They really don't care. And I think that the administration is trying to encourage that kind of collaboration. But unfortunately, these artifacts of scholarship lie in the way the institutions have been put together. And it's, it's a long history of the way things are done and definitely difficult to overcome. But when you do, it's the passion that carries you past yeah. those obstacles. And when you start to create the way we have been able to in the Art Science Fusion program, it's so exciting. that And that discovery process is so exciting. And then watching it transform your students And having class after class of students come at the end of the quarter and tell you that they are transformed wow. by what they've done. That really, to me, it tells me that we're going in the right direction and that we're having an impact. No doubt. Wow. You must, you must go, go to bed in the evening with a big smile. You've, you've, you've impacting people's lives in such a deep way. Yeah. Diane... I want to thank you so much. We were with Diane Ullman. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a 
wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really fun. To the listeners, I want to thank you for your presence. Join us for each episode as we delve into the themes and ideas that underpin Sigrid shows. Learn more about the roots of creativity and how to keep your eyes, mind, and heart open to new sources of creative inspiration. And remember, it can come from anywhere and anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Sit to Sound. I am Michel Apis. À la prochaine. Cirque du Sound is produced by Cirque du Soleil with technical and story production by Jar Audio. If you like what you heard today on Cirque du Sound, please subscribe, comment, and leave a review. 